0: One, two, three.
1: Welcome to Three Song Stories. We're the show that asks our guests to find three songs that will always take them back to a memory and story, and then we build our conversations around them. Thanks for listening. I'm Mike Connery. Our guest this week is Jeremy Hunsicker. Jeremy's life and career has spanned everything from sales and operations in the trucking industry to being a professional musician and songwriter to his current career as a copywriter and direct response marketing strategist. He's founder of the email marketing firm, The Isotope Agency. As a singer and performer, Jeremy was the frontman for one of the most popular Journey cover bands in the U.S., called Frontiers, and in 2007, he was even offered the role of lead singer with the actual band Journey. Thanks to political turmoil inside the band, that offer fell through, but not before Jeremy's songwriting contributions earned him a Platinum RIAA Sales Award for the band's 2008 release, Revelations. In 2011, Jeremy suffered a catastrophic onstage injury to his vocal chords and was forced to retire as a performer forever. That's when he transitioned back to his copywriting and marketing skills. His bio, which appears to have been written by ChatGPT, by the way, since he was born somewhere east of Kent, Ohio, but spent most of his formative years in Fort Myers, where he attended Fort Myers High, and then graduated from Cypress Lake High School in 1989. He and his wife Sabrina met in college in North Carolina on his first day on campus. It was mutual love at first sight. They've now called Western Virginia home for the past 27 years raising two exceptional teenage boys, and they're passionate about autism and special needs advocacy due to their youngest son's journey on the spectrum. They share their home with a super cool therapy golden doodle named Jack. When not working, Jeremy is a recovering audiophile who, quote, believes digital is better than vinyl and that some cables can, in fact, make a difference, end quote. We sat down in his basement office just outside of Roanoke, Virginia.
0: All right, I see that we've got two red lines that are forming here. It looks as though I feel like we could just pluck these right out of that program right there and uh, put them together and remix them and do anything that we wanted to with this
1: conversation. That's what Richard will do. Hi, Richard. Say hi to Richard. Hello, Richard. Richard's going to listen to this. We're going to save this. this All is gonna right. Be part of it. The, sh- the awesome. podcast already started, Jeremy. <laughs> <laughs> hi, Jeremy. Hello, Michael. We're sitting here in the basement of your lovely home. Indeed. Thank you for doing this. Well, you're welcome, and thank you for coming up to talk to me. Did you actually have ChatGPT write your
0: bio? I had it uh, help me with it. I told it everything about myself, I told it my life story, and uh, it took it all and synthesized it into a 350 word uh, paragraph that I had to then
1: rewrite in order to make it sound like a human. And so why did it start with uh, as if you were giving a presentation? It started with, today we're joined by Jeremy Hunsicker, the founder of the email marketing firm Isotope Agency. I thought that was very formal for a biography.
0: Well, yeah, I I think um, I just kind of gave you the outline, and then allow you to present that in whatever way fits the format best.
1: I appreciate that. So just full disclosure, as I've already said in the intro, Jeremy and I have known each other for 40 plus years, so bear with us. We'll try not to make this too inside baseball. <laughs> um, where'd you grow up and how do, would you describe the musical background of your childhood? I knew from like my memory that you hadn't been born in Fort Myers, but where, where were you born and how long before you got to Fort Myers? So, I was born outside of Kent, Ohio. Uh,
0: I was uh, basically spent the first 10 years of my life in a little town called Brimfield, Ohio. And this was, uh, I was born in 71, so I spent most of the entire uh, 1970s in Ohio, which is a great time to be in central Ohio. The economy was thriving, there's a new industry uh, called uh, the rubber industry, and they were just putting out tires left and right um obviously that's the opposite of what happened it was uh, a terrible place to be and um so in in 1981
1: uh we moved down to southwest florida and that's where our story began i didn't i think until just now realize that you were as new to fort myers as i was because i came there uh right before my third grade year so it would have been like may of 80 so i was actually there before you yeah we moved on new year's day 1981. Huh. so musical background of your childhood like how would you characterize it in terms of what you were being exposed to um what were you listening to like what was music around you during those early formative years including still in ohio
0: well yeah i think there's a uh definitely a chunk of of my musical memory that that is in ohio and then there's a chunk that's in florida and, and it all kind of pieces together but In Ohio for the ages of, um, I guess, maybe, you know, five to nine, I think maybe those three or four years that that I really started having memories of of that kind of thing. Um, It was kind of what I call the soundtrack years because during that time I was listening to music on my own, but that music was uh, soundtracks to the movie Grease, soundtracks to the movie Star Wars, soundtrack to... um, the uh saturday night fever which i somehow came across uh the soundtrack to the muppet movie which was a huge one i think and then at that point from like 79 to 81 or so that's where i really got more exposed to what was happening in uh
1: pop music at the time on the charts and the radios and stuff like that um what were your folks listening to was there music being played around the house that wasn't yours Oh yeah, I, I would sit
0: for hours and hours um, listening to my my parents' records. Um, the basic, you know, Trinity of of Barbra Streisand and Neil Diamond and uh, and Barry Manilow. That's that's what they were playing <laughs> in the house in in the 1970s. Um, but I think there was also, you know, my my folks had a, a large record collection. Uh, Motown and going back into even you know some of these compilations of 50s hits and stuff like that. So, I do remember listening to like all these horrible teenage death songs, like (laughs) they came out in the late 50s, where um, it was fascinating because songs like Endless Sleep, where it's talking about. Uh, a lover that drowns themselves in the ocean. So you did say death just then. Yeah, yeah. Like, there was this whole thing. Like, I would listen to these records of compilations of surf music and and late 50s, early 60s hits. And most of them were about teenagers getting killed in car crashes or drowning themselves in the ocean over heartbreak. So I guess it was a very, very difficult time to be a teenager or love at that time. (laughs) Um, But also the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, you know, a lot of that stuff is is, without getting into the hard rock like Led Zeppelin and Pink Floyd and and some of the stuff that was happening in the early 70s. there was definitely a lot of opportunity for me to listen to The Temptations, Wilson Pickett, um, Sam Cooke, uh, geez, a lot of a lot of the, a lot of the uh, R&B uh, folks like Marvin Gaye and and, uh, of course, Aretha Franklin. Um, I would listen to that nonstop, endlessly. Um as I would sit down and draw pictures or write stories or play Legos or whatever. And then I eventually started to to where I would sing, you know, along with it. And so it became, what did I like singing? What along with, what was, what would capture my imagination that that I could perform? Um,
1: And it kind of developed, you know, along that same path. Um, So my, my early memories, My early memories of you are of being the best singer that I knew. Like when we were kids, you were the one who really could sing. Like Sunshine Singers. I remember right. being like, who's that guy? That guy can sing. So what was the first style of music that you first sang? And um, and were you being recognized as a kid that, had, that could sing? No, it was never really something that... Um was, uh,
0: honestly, I felt like everybody could sing. Like I didn't realize that I was a good singer. Um, I just thought I was the only one that would sing and, and other, other people were like, yeah, yeah, we all sing, shut up. So I never really thought it was that much of a gift until I started actually performing in front of people in my teenage years. But up until that point, I mean, one of my earliest memories was um, just singing Elvis, you know, the, uh, Burning Love. He he came out with a collection of movies, hits or something like that in the early 70s. And I remember just performing that in my bedroom, singing along with Elvis and singing along with uh, the Grease songs and all this kind of stuff. When
1: you were singing at that young age, were you singing in your own voice the words to the song or were you singing like the people sang the songs? Because that's the other thing I remember when you were like in your early teenage years was you had the ability to sound like different Musicians, singers—that was pretty uncanny. Was that always there, or did you kind of grow into that as a lark to impress your teenage friends? No, I
0: think it became as as I started listening to more really talented and unique voices. I think one that stands out is Art Garfunkel's voice. Um, he just has this you know, brilliant voice of an angel. And so when you were when I would sing "Bridge Over Troubled Waters," you know, in my living room. You got you to gotta sing like Art Garfunkel. You know, it, it, I wasn't that creative uh, or, or musically developed to just come up with my own interpretations of those things. So it was cool for me to be able to sing like Art Garfunkel. It was cool for me uh, to be able to sing like Rob Halford or Judas Priest or even King Diamond at some point. So those unique voices, it really, it to, in my eyes, it was like, well, that's how the song is perform that's how it sounds and that's how these guys recreated it so if i'm going to pull that off then you know this is what i have to sound like
1: um instruments playing instruments i don't remember you playing any instruments i don't think any of us really played any instruments i didn't play that much um in high school i played piano
0: i took piano lessons um i played guitar i took guitar lessons um but I, See, I, I didn't never... I
1: didn't know that about you. That's that's, yeah, that's yeah, no, I... novel information to me.
0: No, I, I played just enough to accompany myself and, and to figure out how to, to
1: play the basic chords of whatever it was I was trying to sing. Hmm. Uh what was the first band or musician that you locked on to? Hmm.
0: Um geez, I don't really know the answer to that. I think that like the first band that I became a super fan of like in, in terms of buying all their records and everything was probably Judas Priest. I think, you know, when I was 14, 15 years old, they had come out with the, uh, their, their turbo record, which everybody hated. And so I went back and and listened to their back catalog and became really obsessed with that. And especially through, you know, Rob Halford's voice and the, the, uh, range that he had.
1: Hmm. I don't think I knew that about you either. This is great. Um, Okay, before we get to your first song, uh, do you remember the first time you saw music performed live that wasn't church-related?
0: I remember the first time I saw music that I thought was performed live that was not church-related. And it had a huge... um, it, It left a huge impression on me. But I didn't realize until really in the past couple of weeks as I was trying to figure out what we were going to talk about um that it was not a live performance when i was in the first grade there was an elementary school um talent show and i remember this because of the year that this song came out um but i i went there and there was a a kid that must have been in the fourth grade or something so we're talking eight or nine years old and he came up and he sang i can't smile without you by barry manilow and i remember Seeing this kid at Suffield Elementary School in the gym, you know all the all the kids are all and the teachers, and he's singing this brilliant Barry Manilow song with this kick line, you know, ending and all the giant modulations and, and and everybody, literally everybody in the gym is clapping along with this kid, and the teachers are like, "Oh my god, this guy is great!" and I'm thinking that this is like you know a baby Elvis or something, <laughs> and. Now, and that inspired me so much that I wanted to go home and be a performer because I saw how everybody related to this. And then in the past couple of weeks, I've been scratching my head thinking, how could an eight or nine year old song have, kid have sung that song? It doesn't make any sense. And so I actually put it on and listened to it for the first time in 30-some-odd years. And I realized the kid was just lip-syncing <laughs> the whole entire show. And, and that's why everybody was, you know, singing along and clapping their hands and cheering and standing up, because it was Barry Manilow. <laughs> it was not some little eight-year-old kid.
1: Uh, there's a kid on the other side of that story that's somewhere right now who's like 55 years old. And that kid's name? He remembered name? when he slayed it.
0: Yeah, that kid's name is... Uh, God knows. I was going to say the lead singer of Nine Inch Nails, and then I completely (laughs) forgot his name. Trent Reznor? Yeah.
1: And that child was Trent Reznor. (laughs) Uh, Okay, let's do your first song. And just to let listeners know, we're sitting in the basement, and it's a finished basement, and we're in a uh, a, a spare bedroom kind of media room. And the next door, he's got his main media room, and he's got this awesome audio setup. So when we play the songs, we're actually going to walk next door and listen to them through, like, the most badass sound system ever. Um, but tell us what the song is and tell us how you want to proceed. All right. The song is
0: Urgent by Foreigner. And um, I think I'll talk about the song and then we'll listen to it. Okay. Talk. So I, as I mentioned, I, we moved to uh, Florida in January of 1981. And we moved around to a couple of different, you know, uh rental units, uh, t- townhouses, that kind of stuff for about the first six months or so. And so I didn't really have a firm, you know, I didn't land, you know, very easily in Florida at the time. And so I, I would spend a lot of time listening to music, sitting in my bedroom, reading books and, and comics and stuff like that. And I just had a distinct memory of, um, the summer of 1981, when I am laying in my bedroom in the townhome at Harbor K Apart- Apartments or townhomes in, uh, in Fort Myers, and the first record that I have ever bought, like the first grown-up record, was the 45 of Urgent by Foreigner. And now the song is only about four minutes long, so I must have been flipping it over and over again or, you know, listening to it along with another stack of records or something. But I will always remember laying in that bed and reading Life magazine. From September of 1981, because I was I was infatuated with uh, the John Landis movie American Werewolf in London, and there was a feature article in Life magazine that showed all of these horrifying, gore-filled pictures of this werewolf with blood all over him, and the and the uh, Nazi zombies in the movie theaters and stuff like that. And I was I had that memory of reading the story and reading um, about charles and diana's wedding and there was a, the, a cover story was the artificial heart the jarvik heart and so in that moment with this song playing every time i i've heard this song ever since then it brings me back into that bedroom uh where i'm reading this and but more importantly i think it was really the launch of the 1980s for me, because uh, decade-wise, things don't always match up, you know, and really in 1980, we're still in the 1970s. I was still in Ohio. In 1981, I moved to Florida, and that's when everything changed. So all of a sudden, instead of hearing Kenny Rogers and Brad on the radio or whatever in, in the late 70s, early early eighty, early 1980s, you've got this incredible year of, of hits that all of a sudden people like Soft Cell and Gary Newman are coming out with their hits. Jesse's Girl comes out, Foreigner, and Thomas Dolby, who people wouldn't learn about until a couple of years later, but he played all of the keyboards on that Foreigner record. And so that sound became that propulsive sound of the 80s. And so by the end of that year, we were well on our way into what everyone always associates with the 80s sound. That's when it happened, and for me, sitting in the bedroom that summer in 1981 was the bookend on that part
1: of the decade. Well, let's listen to it uh, next door in your awesome sound room. All right. This is Jeremy Hunsiger's first song today here on Three Song Stories, um, recorded on location in Jeremy's basement in southwestern Virginia. This is Urgent by Foreigner from their 1981 album, Four. Party rotation?
0: Uh, no, it's not. In fact, I don't even own that. Um, I had to stream it from uh, from a service because I just don't listen to a whole lot of. That's foreigner. like slumming
1: for you, audiophile.
0: <laughs> no, it's. it's Well, that was a great version of it. But um, no, I never. I, I don't have any foreigner. It's not. Uh, it, it, it wasn't really. I mean, I love Lou, Lou Graham's voice. And that song is, is just incredible as far as the work that uh, Mutt Lang and Junior Walker and Thomas Dolby had to do with that song as much as Mick Jones and Lou Graham did. Um, but uh, it's, it's kind of that unique song in their catalog that I always would come back to, or that had that particular you know memory
1: in my head well we've had a number of guests over the years qu- comment on how good our studio headphones are and listening to a song in good studio headphones is a nice experience um that was a delightful experience in there with your uh, your your tuned up sound system what's the uh, give the breakdown for the audio files out there of what we just are listening to that through awesome awesome yeah
0: well i have a um it's all it's basically a, a digital integrated amplifier by techniques it's um everything that goes in there is digitized and cleaned up and made sure that uh the all of the electrical stuff is matching and uh and works the way it should and then I've got Harbeth uh speakers which are are kind of famous for being a uh a real very natural sounding mid-range speaker that they use at the uh British broadcasting um the beeb so, yes yes uh, so yeah, it's a, it's a great system and there's a lot of detail and unlike a lot of digital systems that techniques
1: integrated really has a uh, very natural and organic sound to it. Um, your bio ends with that, um, some cables can in fact make a difference. Yes. I, I'm going to press you uh, on that.
0: Well, I, I think that, um, <laughs> to say that cables don't are, there's a, there's a large debate in audiophile Uh, communities largely uh, separating people with engineering backgrounds and people who just like to spend money and listen to music. And of course they're both polar opposites, but the reality is that how you construct a cable is is going to affect the sound that it transfers maybe very, very slightly, or however, uh, you know, noticeable is, uh, you know, Maybe that's the placebo, but it does change the sound. And uh, I have had very thin cables, and I have had very fat cables. And uh, the fat cables seem to uh, have a little bit more beef to the sound. And maybe it's because I'm just thinking, well, these cables are pretty
1: fat uh they must the, the have... cables going into those speakers are fat <laughs> cables i will give you that
0: yeah and i, I would love to unplug them and, and and sell them uh and 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 use that money to to buy a ten dollar a spool of ten dollar speaker cable from best buy but i have been down that road and discovered that uh i didn't think it sounded as good so i would
1: go back to those big fat cables again so you moved to fort myers 1981 you would have been what like fourth grader fifth grader Yes, I went to Orangewood in fourth grade, and uh, then Tanglewood in the fifth grade. So we went to Orangewood together? Yep. No, wait. I started at Orangewood in fourth grade. You would have been gone already. Did you go to Fort Myers Middle? yeah i went to fort myers middle so we did go to fort myers myers middle together yeah but we knew each other before that because that would have been the church had already come around that's what i was getting at how did you guys wind up at wesley because that's how you and i and all of our friends from back then met each other was through a a, a methodist church
0: yeah yeah so when we moved to Flor or to fort myers uh we rented a small house off of mcgregor boulevard up there by the river um or by the the midpoint bridge i guess i um before close the bridge, to, close to Colonial, I mean, yeah, up there across the McGregor from the First Baptist
1: Church, I think. Yeah, in that area, back where Susan Rock lived.
0: Yeah, yeah, and our next door neighbor at the time were uh, they were an elderly couple that would go to Wesley, and so my folks wanted us to get involved in a church, and that's where they uh, that's where we first started out with, and that's how I got involved with the youth group and the Sunshine Singers and all of the wonderful stuff singing uh probably one of my first performances ever in front of people uh with me and and uh and Chris and Paula we performed a Judas priest song for the uh congregation <laughs> at <Wesley> church <laughs> How do I not remember that? I don't know, but it's a very formative memory of mine. <laughs> uh yeah, we played a song called Epitaph and Chris played the piano and and I sang um, and it was, it was off of uh, I think it was off of um, Sad Wings of Destiny, one of the early Judas Priest records where they still had a little bit of a bluesy and almost a glam type uh, approach the first two or three records. Um, But this was a piano ballad about an old man looking back on his life and feeling like he really never accomplished anything, I think. And for some reason we thought that would be the ideal song to sing and for youth you know youth sunday or whatever where everybody does something so maybe one person is giving the message another everybody else is helping with the i may uh, have
1: skipped that day yeah
0: yeah they maybe they didn't want you around they
1: they gave they
0: gave you direction oh no mike we're not uh, we're not having church that day no
1: (laughs) you um i know you did theater in high school and we'll get to that but did you do theater in middle school or when did you start doing like theater outside the church cuz we did our own little plays at church and stuff but i don't know if i'd call that theater.
0: Yeah, i never did theater um until my this the summer between my junior and senior year. You're kidding high me. School. Wow. Right, right. I mean, i did i put on shows and, and did concerts and stuff like that, but i never did plays or theater. Um the summer of between my junior and senior year i went uh to the there was a youth theater group that was started by the folks at cypress lake high school and uh we did the the um what was it the fiddler on the roof i remember that so that was the first time i ever got up in a play you know and, and had any lines and, and saying anything i played the russian with a really high voice in the um in the tavern scene and then they all start, you know, dancing on the tables and, and that kind
1: of thing. So that was my first experience. It was Give us a little cool. fiddler? You got a little fiddler in there for us?
0: You might say we're all fiddlers on the roof. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to sing any of those uh, songs anymore. Anyway. I'm trying to work on my Topol
1: impression. That I, I wish I would have
0: brushed that up beforehand.
1: Oh, but then you, uh, you became part of the Cypress Lake theater crew that did some amazing work that drew fans from far and wide your junior and senior year then, right? Right, right. So when we
0: did Fiddler on the Roof, I was still a student at Fort Myers High School. And, of course, I, all of our friends from Wesley were, there was a lot of friends from Cyprus and there was a lot of friends from Fort Myers. So I knew people from both schools. Um, and there was talk that they were going to be performing Jesus Christ Superstar that fall or spring at Cypress Lake High School. And I was really interested in playing Jesus uh, or Judas, I guess. Um, but I was not a student there. And so I went through this entire process. At the time, my parents had to get in touch with a psychologist. We had to do uh, submit paperwork and and everything. I was maybe 10 miles from Fort Myers High School, and I was maybe two miles from Cypress Lake. But that's the way the district was set up. So my senior year, I I changed schools, went to Cypress Lake, and I kept all my old friends and made new friends. And we did, uh, I think I did The Music Man and... Jesus Christ Superstar, and I think those were the only two other plays, and those are the only plays I ever did. I never did anything else besides that. Huh. When you went to college, what'd you go to college for? I went initially as a music major, and I discovered that I knew very, very little about actual music, so um, I changed uh, my major to an English major because I was a writer, and I figured that I could BS my way through just about anything to get the highest maximum grades that I would need to do whatever I wanted to do after that. So uh, I switched to an English,
1: English degree after that. And you didn't do any theater or anything in college?
0: Now that I think about, well,
1: I was, I was a music major my first
0: semester and I think we might've done, you know, a couple of operetta type stuff, you know, just as part of the school uh, classes. And then I think I might have been in something in my junior or senior year at Greensboro College because mm. we transferred, but I don't remember what it was. I just remember like being around the stage and, and all the, all, all the, uh, folks at, at Greensboro College, um, Maybe it was Little Shop of Horrors. I don't Hmm. remember.
1: I want to go back to Jesus Christ Superstar because I did allude to the fact that, you know, you guys, those shows drew a big crowd and Mm -hmm. they were really remarkable. I remember being like super impressed, like super proud, like my friend's Jesus.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um,
1: uh, What was that like? Like that's a heavy role that takes a lot of singing chops. And if memory serves, you and everyone pretty much nailed it. Yeah,
0: it was. I mean, it was such an incredibly talented group of people, and and uh, that was why I was I I was so excited to be a part of, of Cypress Lake, uh, just because of all the people that were. I don't know what it was in the water, you know, but everybody there seemed to be, you know, just so, high performers. So good. Yeah, right, right. Um, and as far as playing that role goes, it was. Um, You know, it it was kind of like being a rock star. I mean, I'm I'm standing up there and I'm singing songs that, uh, you know, Ian Gillard of Deep Purple, you know, and and, and, I mean, there's just high screaming 1970s hard rock
1: uh, vocals and, um, you know, everybody loved it. It's the kind of role that either you get it or you don't. Like there's no like 80% there and people are like, that was pretty good. Like 80% there isn't good enough for that kind of role. Right. And you really guys, you got there. It was amazing. Oh, thank you, man. Yeah, I remember it fondly.
0: All those years of uh, practicing Judas Priest paid off. (laughs) with the high falsetto screams. You know, I ran into, I I didn't run into him. We went uh, many, many, many years later jesus christ superstar came through charlotte north carolina and ted neely and um ah, i forgot who judas uh he had passed away recently um oh my gosh but they both came through uh cypress lake or i'm I'm sorry, in Charlotte, North Carolina, at the Ovens Auditorium. And I went after Sabrina and I, my wife, went into the backstage door after the, after the show. And I met Ted Neely, the guy who played Jesus in the movie and the guy who I had, you know, studied on the, the recordings and everything like that. And it was like meeting a rock. I mean, he was a rock star. It was crazy. I, I didn't know what to say. I was like, oh, you're the best. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's because I'm Jesus.
1: <laughs> you met uh, Sabrina at college, like, almost right away, right?
0: Yeah, we met my first, uh, well, we met before college, uh, the, the, we were the music department, the vocal department was going to go on a, uh, week long pre enrollment, um, study type to, to learn the parts for a show that we were doing. So we were there a week ahead of time. And then we went to St. Simon's Island. There was a, um, down in Georgia, there was a, um, a church camp or something down there cause this was a Methodist university. And we went down there and rehearsed for the week. And so we met the first, the very first day uh, that I got down there and we were waiting for to get on the bus and she's standing there and I was standing across the parking lot and she was, you know, a very friendly person, uh, always uh, eager to make people comfortable. And uh, I fell in love. So.
1: <laughs> and she did too, right? Yeah,
0: she loved that. she, uh, she's still here. So yeah.
1: Uh, any musical memories associated with your time in college? concerts you guys going to concerts
0: not really i was never really a big concert guy um i think you know there was a few shows that we went to that, that they weren't big i mean we went to see i went to see um Bela fleck and the fleck back when howard levy was still playing harmonica and piano with them um that was one of my first concerts actually i think that was probably 91 or 92. um we went to see Tori Amos on the Under the Pink tour, um, and then we went to you know. Throughout the years, we've been to a lot more concerts, but not really in college. It, it just wasn't a big, it wasn't a big
1: musical time in my life. When did you form your first band? Was it Frontiers, or was there something prior to Frontiers?
0: Oh no i I sang in a band in high school with. Uh, it was a thrash
1: band with Eric and oh and, yeah 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 uh, was that Wayne phone and, sex
0: well no he called, had a
1: band called phone sex <laughs> it was not it was Hood the Sprint sex. phone card era so it was F-O-N it was clever
0: oh okay well no this was uh um, in 86 85 86 or 87 it must have been around the 86 87 time because uh we were playing anthrax songs that came out on peace cells um which I think came out in 80 Five or eighty-six, but yeah, we played. We we uh, performed. We did one show at the carnival, in it was it was off of down by um, off of colonial uh, in Summerland. There, there was a um, it was a, a weird carnival that was going on, and our thrash band for some reason was going to play there. So we got up there, and I invited my grandparents. So uh, my my. You know, elderly grandparents are there in this mosh pit and they're, they're always love Jeremy. They're going to follow him and do whatever, you know, watch whatever he does. And we're up there playing Anthrax and Slayer and Metallica and King Diamond and, and, uh, you know, people are getting arrested. (laughs) And my grandparents are like, Oh, that was really great.
1: (laughs) So that was my first band. That was the first time I ever performed. So how long between college and forming Frontiers? That would have been a long time, right? Yeah, we we didn't form Frontiers until 2002. 2002, so almost a decade. Yeah. Um, how did that come about? Well, when I moved to Virginia, I, I,
0: I joined a, a local bar band, uh, just a cover band, a classic rock band, and um, we were playing – Uh, the limited bar circuit, you know, in Southwest Virginia. And um, it was kind of the typical everybody plays the same songs from Brown Eyed Girl to Give Me Three Steps to all the, you know, all the hits, I guess. And I loved performing and I loved to do that, but I couldn't, you know, I couldn't stand on stage in a bar with people playing pool or watching sports and and trying to perform. It was just so uh, distressing. So I thought, how do is there a way that we could create something that's going to be an an, an actual attraction, like the people are going to come and see and engage with and and have fun? And we had already done three or four Journey songs in our set that everybody seemed to love, and of course everybody thought, oh, Jeremy, you sound like Steve Perry. And um, so then we just started it here in uh, in Virginia with the same band of guys, and we started doing a couple of shows a year. And uh, within two to three years, we were playing all through the Mid-Atlantic and Southeast, uh, traveling on weekends.
1: And playing and places uh, like, I think I saw you at House of Blues once. I mean, playing places like like, right, right. like small, mid-sized like venue venues.
0: Yeah. Right. And we were playing festivals. I, I mean, you guys came up to see us at Savannah's uh-huh. uh, St. Patrick's Day, yeah, wasn't it? And um, so it was a big deal. And that's where, I, I guess, eventually the Jonathan Cain, the keyboard player of Journey, uh, his daughter, I guess, was had found one of our videos on like YouTube. Early
1: YouTube era.
0: Yeah, so this would have been 2007. And um, I got a phone call from our agent, from our manager, and he was like, Jonathan Cain of Journey is trying to get in touch with you. And the only thing to me means he's, he's gonna going to sue me. Yeah, exactly. He's <laughs> like, Hey, you guys stop playing my songs. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, so I finally got in touch with him. I'll never forget. I was in the office. I was working for a trucking company at the time in sales. And I went back to the, the office in the terminal there in my, um, uh, you know, uh, desk and close the door and I'm talking to this guy and it's just like so surreal that he's so, this is Jonathan Cain of Journey, and he's talking to me on the cell phone. He's like, you know, I've, I've just never, we've been looking around and we've I know all the people that are out there and I've never heard anybody with the heart that you have. That's the way that, you know, apparently what really came across to them was the feeling and the, and the delivery of the music and not so much a note for note replica of, of what they were doing. And, um, and so that's all how that whole thing kind of came about.
1: Um, we'll get to a bit more of that story after your second song, but I want to go back to when you first started, you know, full on doing Frontiers and you were doing, doing Journey songs. Do you remember, like, cause I've seen you, I saw you do shows and sometimes there would be people there who at first would be like, oh God, they're going to sing Journey songs, but by like <laughs> third or fourth songs, they're like up in the, like, you know, frat boys and. And loafers are up in the front row like, what? Like you, like the power of those songs to really move an audience and then your ability to do them well enough that that did that. Do you remember like the first few times that that really happened? Thinking, man, this is awesome, you know? Yeah, I think. It must have been. I mean. I think it was um, disturbing.
0: Disturbing. If that's a way that I could describe it. It was not something that I was anticipating just the response that it would get when we would play. And when I would stand up in the, especially in those early years and deliver those songs in the way that, that I felt like they had to be performed, it was an emotional thing,
1: you know, it, yeah. it, we,
0: it was you weren't draining. just waving your hand at it. Right, you right. were in it to win it. So it was, it was very draining from that standpoint. And then the crowd became so caught up in it that, you know, really I would go, I would walk off stage and I would just be in a depression for a day or two because I was like, you know, I don't know why that happened. I don't know how it happened. Those people, uh, that they don't know me, you know, that I'm, I'm not the guy that was up there doing that. So then who am I? You know, it was very existential, I think for huh. a while. Um, yeah, it was bizarre.
1: Hmm. Huh. Let's do your second song. All right. And we're going to get into, we're going to be going back in time a little bit because we're going to get into a part of um, our life that we brushed past earlier, but go ahead.
0: I kind of feel like we should talk about that first before we listen to the song. To okay. Just kind of set the you know, Let's set do the it. Stage. So the song is Invisible Sun by the police, and the year is 1986. And the place is the KOA campground. Where was the KOA campground? I think
1: like? it might've been Arcadia, you know, somewhere within an hour or so drive of Southwest Florida.
0: Right, right. So, so we went there as part of our church youth group and we had developed a, uh, kind of a little clique, a, a group of us there that we've talked about and you've talked about it probably before on the show,
1: but I don't know um, if I've gone too far down the ragu tour team road. Ah, I've well, said it. Now it's out. Yeah, there we go. So uh, <laughs> we we
0: had formed this this uh, kind of ragtag group of, of uh, misfits uh, from going to church and, and the youth group that we were at. And I think the way it started was through these camping trips that we would go on during the summertime uh, to Lake Judaluska, North Carolina. And the road trips that we would have there, and then eventually we started doing mission work in eastern Kentucky and it would it, it all became a very big thing. This entire culture around it, uh, around the idea of, of King Ragu.
1: Yes. <laughs> king Ragu who uh, who started off as a, a character in a Barbie comic book, I yep. believe. And then yep. he 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 got transformed into the king. And we like it was kind of like Dead Poet Society. Yeah, Uh, you know, when that movie came out, I'm like, that's kind of like what we were. Because we were like these kids who kind of knew each other, but formed a bond around our togetherness through this church thing and even though we none of us really we fused right, right and we like stopped on our way up to you know north carolina and and got um ragu um the little me- the, no the little meal oh the meal yeah the little ragu meals and we made uh, like um like membership cards and then right, we had the right. bandanas that we would wear yeah and we weren't like nine years old either yeah we were, we were like, like 14 15, 15. yeah <laughs>
0: It was kind of like a gang, I guess, and um, a
1: mild-mannered Methodist youth gang. Well, I don't know about
0: mild-mannered.
1: We had our we had our our moments,
0: (laughs) (laughs) but yeah. So so that's that became a huge part of of my life. I think of all of our lives, and and we're still you know here we are forty plus years. Uh, later uh, sitting in my home and we've just talked about all our friends and everything and what they're up to. So it's an amazing thing that has transcended, you know, time and, 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 and become this part of who we are. But um, every time I hear the police, the the big soundtrack of those, of those uh, adventures, a lot of the time was the singles, the, the greatest hits package that came out in 1986. And, the one song in particular that I had never heard before because um, everybody knew every breath you take message in a bottle "The do da da Roxanne, but I had never heard the song invisible sun before. And I didn't really know what it meant. I know to me, it sounded like this odd Eastern European cold war type thing. And I'll always remember every time I hear it, it brings me back to us at the KOA campground with we were walking down along a stream and the, I'll always remember it's just the white sand on the, on the banks of this thing. And I don't even know where we were going or why we were walking, but we were just listening to that song and the song, the stark sound of that song and the odd, you know, post cold war or cold war messaging of the song, whatever it was, it was just such a match for that landscape at the time, because we're in the middle of nowhere in, you know, Arcadia or wherever in this campground. And there's just, it's barren. It's there's nothing but scrub, you know, and white sand and, and snakes and water. And we're just listening to this music and it matched the um, it matched the feeling at the time that was just like this weird teenage angst, I guess. Uh, but it, of course, it it always brings me back as a springboard
1: to those memories with the Raghu Tour team. Hmm. I have this very vivid memory of, we went away, we were in Orlando on our way back from a trip, and we, we were staying at this place where they had us kind of commingled with kids that were in juvie. Does that ring a bell at all? No. Huh. And uh, laying on the st- on the stage, we got to use the, uh, the 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 place where the you know the gym slash performance stage. Right. Laying on the stage with my little crappy Walkman, listening to this, you know the singles. Yeah. And, like I will always remember that moment. And yeah. Just like wondering what life was going to be like.
0: Right. Right. And you know what? Because we were talking about the greatest hits and the singles and everything like that, something that I think about when I listen to your podcast, and and I thought about in preparation is that when you think about your favorite songs they're not they're not the songs that you would talk about in this kind of format because there are so like if i if i pick one of my favorite songs there will be 700 moments that that i can unpack that have to do with that from the time i was 12 to the time i was 52 but it's that one song that always brings you back to that time and like i said i don't listen to foreigner all the time i don't listen to urgent all the time i not i had never heard of invisible sun before you know before i started listening to it uh that that year and it's it's really the uniqueness of those individual sounds that bring back that specific memory
1: it's probably like a physical thing in our brain like that's been marked i'm sure yeah Well, let's listen to it next door in your badass sound room. Uh, Invisible Sun by the Police from their 1981 album, Ghost in the Machine. This is Jeremy Hungsicker's second song on Three Song Stories. This is Biography Through Music. Do you remember that KOA campground? Oh, absolutely. I remember being at the KOA. I remember us walking around through the woods. I remember you. That was like you at peak barefoot. Yeah. Like, Jeremy right. used to have, like, such... You he, he did so much barefooting that you could walk on glass, I'm sure.
0: Oh, yeah. It was bizarre. But um, it was barren, right? It was, I mean, my memory of it is that it was very barren. Like, yeah. there was a lot of scrub and there was a lot of sand and no you know, not a whole bunch of, it wasn't like
1: a lush forest.
0: Right. Right. And, and when I hear that song, maybe that's why that's the one song that sticks out to me is because it's just such a barren song. And so I hear that land, I hear that song and immediately it, it brings me back to that landscape of us walking in the, you know, the, the immense heat and the humidity, you know, is, is for whatever reason we were trekking,
1: uh, down, down the side of this stream. Um, Because that's what we did. Yeah, we We, just walked. We trekked with our red bandanas on.
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: Screaming, red! Unless there was trouble, then we would scream, yellow! "Yellow!" (laughs) Oh my gosh. (laughs) Before we move on, we have to tell a bit of uh, Raggy Tour Team stories. Because I have this one story. It's one of my favorite stories to tell from that time. And it's safe for radio. And I want to get it down on record. So we're at Redbird Mission in Kentucky, which is this little place up in the hills of Kentucky. Um, where they had some cabins behind a main common area, and we would go there for a week, and you know, do um, you know, kind of sl- slightly churchy kind of stuff, you know, like you know, prayer meetings and things like that. But then we would like send us off, and we would go help people, like in the community, like solve problems, you know, We'd do little mission work, basically. Yeah. But one of the jobs we had one year was cleaning out the barn in the in the <laughs> yeah. back, and it had stuff in it all the way back to like pre World War Two. And imagine a, a group of, you know, 5, 14, and 15, or 16-year-olds coming across, like, 20 gross boxes of World War II surpra- surplus maxi pads.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> that
1: were, like, the size of, like, a like a gold bar. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was, it was 1963, wasn't it? Oh, were they from 63? They were, okay, they were, I like, post-Korean yeah. War maxi pads right right so of uh, course we we uh we implemented them in our tomfoolery uh i remember we covered the girls uh cabin completely yeah those were that was the peak of
0: hijinks i'll tell you what (laughs) hey look what we got a lot of military surplus uh sanitary (laughs) i know let's put them all over the girls cabin
1: (laughs) confirm a memory for me so junaluska in north carolina we were up there and we all, at the end, of, toward the end of the week, we would all walk up the hill to where there was a big cross. Mm-hmm. And you got up and sang a cappella to a rapt audience, yes. Father Figure by George Michael.
0: It, I think it was um, One More Try. Oh. Or no, it was is that the name of the song? Um, maybe Just One More Try. Yeah, that was it. Yeah, it was One More Try, because it's kind of a gospel song. And uh, so in the arrangement on the George Michael Faith record, it's a pop song and it's got this very melancholy uh, synthesizer pad, you know, type background and everything and this very iconic uh, bassline by Dion Estes that, um, that I ripped off of for hoping for you. But, um, but, then when George would go out and perform that song, he was in his very much like, I want to shed my pop star persona. So he recreated it as like a ste almost like a Stevie Wonder type gospel, uh, gospel song with piano and, and, and this great gospel choir behind it. And um, so that was for whatever reason, I thought, what can I sing? I don't want to, I didn't want to get up and sing like an Amy Grant song or something. So, that, to me, for in my 15-year-old brain, was like, there's the connection. This is a, a gospel arrangement of this pop song about a teacher, you know. And, of course, it was about George Michael repressing his sexuality. and <laughs> <laughs> So it wasn't quite the fit, you know, at the time. But, but no. you had,
1: like, people were, like I said, wrapped. I mean, the, the adults that were there, the teenagers that were there, you had them in the palm of your hand. I remember that. That was awesome. That was awesome. And then you mentioned Hoping for You. So a different year we were at Junaluska. I had chicken pox on the trip, so I was in quarantine most of the time. Yes. And you guys played this song Hoping for You in the talent show, which your main competition was like some air band, air guitar people. Well, oh, hi, Alexa wrist. Oh, um and and so talk about that a little bit because I just I couldn't go and I remember you came back and somebody had recorded it with one of those little crappy tape players. So I was able to hear like a, a really crappy recording of it, but that's a core memory for me. So Chris and I wrote that song because
0: we would go after church um, or in between uh, Sunday school and the church service or whatever. And we would find a piano in the church like every week we would go in there and just play for an hour or two. um, And we would write songs together that were just, um, you know, like one of them was, I think a song about uh, a pimp who didn't have to pay taxes or something. It just it just random nonsense stuff. Tax cheat pimp. Yeah, <laughs> he it was, it was like he he had a job he didn't pay no income tax. Now I, I can't remember what it was, but. Anyway, so we wrote this actual song called Hoping for You and it was um it was like a, a ballad, a piano ballad, but it had drums and and bass and then this Chris would rip out this amazing saxophone solo right in the middle of it. And so we put it together with um of course uh Biff already played the drums. So he knew, you know, he, that was his instrument. Uh Biff did not know how to play an instrument, but we taught him. You, t- you that taught bass him up line. to that
1: baseline enough. Yeah,
0: and he, so it was easy. It was like three you know, three notes or something. Um, Rob played, uh, Rob Stacy. Yeah. And, uh, and of course, Chris played the piano and then he would jump up and do the saxophone solo. And, um, so we got that together for the talent show at Lake Junaluska that next year or later on that summer. And, um, everybody loved it. It was, it was fantastic. That was the first time I ever had anybody ask for my autograph. Um, and the band, I'll never forget, we came off the stage and the next band or the next contestant up, um, was, was an air band that was performing every time you cry by the outfield with a <laughs> bunch of, uh, tennis rackets. <laughs> so we had just killed it with this, you know, this live. Original music. Yeah, original music Performed
1: with instruments.
0: Yeah. And, and a killer saxophone solo. And, and, uh. And then those poor guys get up and they're like, you know, acting kind of like the Beatles in 1964, kind of swaying and smiling with their tennis rackets. And I was just like, eh, I'm sorry, guys. <laughs> but uh,
1: you, yeah. You recorded Hoping for You on an album that you put out later in life um, um, as a solo album, right? Right, right. Um, yeah, in t-
0: 2011, I put out a, uh, a CD that I – crowdfunded on Kickstarter, and that was after I had lost my voice uh, from the, the journey thing. I had an injury on stage um, that uh, basically uh, cornerized my vocal cords, um, so they're not, you can hear my voice now is very different than it, than it was for the first 40 years of my life, um, and so the last thing that I wanted to do was was, I was like, well, I guess if I can't sing anymore, I got to have this record and, and finish it. And um, so I had a lot of songs already finished, but I really wanted to make, you know, the, the version of Hoping uh, for You on there to kind of round it out. And I had made a friendship. I had formed a friendship with John Spinks, who's the guitar player and the, the principal songwriter for The Outfield. Does so, he use
1: a, 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 a tennis racket when he plays? No, he was using a, I think, a, a Schecter <laughs> guitar. Uh, but, um, but no, it
0: was it was such such a great uh, way to close that loop that we had, you know, we had performed this song uh, so many years ago, and of course the, you know, the the guys that did the outfield um, air guitar thing, and then to come back and to reimagine that song. And to actually have John be able to play that uh, guitar solo on that song. Um, and of course, he was sick at the time. It was one of the, I think it was, you know, it was one of the last things that he that he did that, that I know of. Um, so it meant that much more to me for him to take those steps and say, you know, hey, I'm not doing too good guy, but, you know, I wanna get this together for you. And, and and it was every effort that he had to help me push that out. So it was, uh, I mean, he was just a, a fantastic human being, let alone um, such a talented uh,
1: musical genius. Um, I wanna close the loop on the journey thing. So you did have a conversation with Jonathan Kane, You wound up spending time with the band enough time where I'm looking over on the wall and you have a platinum record from the album that came out at some point after that experience. What's the short version of that brush with journey? Well, the short version. Um, So Jonathan, called me
0: and he said that they were you know they were looking for a new lead singer I guess the guy that they had after Steve Perry um had had sang for about eight years with them and was having a lot of vocal trouble and he had to actually drop out of the tour the year before uh they were it was a big tour with Def Leppard and in the middle of the tour Steve uh had 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 this very um I think it was a vocal cord infection a long-term infection um and he had they they brought in a ringer, uh, a guy named Jeff Scott Soto, who I had known uh through his music and he had done some side projects with Neil Sean. now I said this was the short version, right that's
1: fine we got time
0: <laughs> so i i I apologize well, I would but, call it
1: long form podcasts
0: right right so so Jeff had finished out the tour and I guess there was still some question even though that they had announced that he was the new lead singer there was still some internal conflict in the band that nobody was aware of and so they were you know wanting to bring me out there and actually audition me to potentially be the new lead singer so they flew out Neil Sean and John Kane flew out to Charlotte and watched one of our performances at one of these downtown you know live friday night concert things and i had dinner with them afterwards and they were both uh you know, very very um excited about it uh and i was completely taken aback cuz i was i had a sales job i was a regular you know 36 year old dude that had never tried to be famous or anything like that and of course uh Sabrina was pregnant with Quinn at the time um our firstborn and she was about six months pregnant. So it was not an ideal time to make something like that happen. But we said, well, let's go with this. And if this is something that is supposed to happen, if this is some something that is supposed to open up to us in this universe, then that's what's going to happen. And if it's not, then we'll know, you know, and, and, and we'll know that we avoided what could have potentially been a disaster. So, um, We actually uh, flew out to San Francisco. We spent a week out there with them. Uh, We performed for four days out of seven days. We were, you know, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, going in there, playing for three hours a day, going through all of their songs uh, with the band. And then at the end of the week, they brought in Irving Azoff and the management team for Journey um, up out of L.A., and of course, Irving is a legend. I mean, he's one of the most powerful men in in the industry. And just sitting there at a table with him in this warehouse while he's talking to my wife about what to buy, you know, her newborn baby and everything. Irving A's office talking to Sabrina about shopping for baby things. So the whole thing was just so bizarre. And they offered me the job at the end of the day. They said, look, if you want to be a part of this, you have a family that you, your wife and your kids, and you're going to have to understand that you're going to have to separate from that, you know, and be, and be in our world. And that's just the way it is. And that was not comfortable to hear, but I was like, well, I'll go along with this. Okay. Let's see how this ends. Um, But then apparently there was this power struggle that was continuing in the band And Neil Sean as the founder of the band felt like he was not being given the the voice, you know, to say, like, I guess he thought, well, now Jonathan found this guy, he's going to come and be the singer. And then there's going to be this block politically in the band of Jonathan and Jeremy and, you know, that kind of thing. So I don't know, you know, the ins and outs of it, but it was handled really poorly. And I came back, uh, and was literally waiting for the the tax the CPAs to fax me, you know, the W nines and all this kind of stuff. And I got a call from their manager, and it said, and, and he said, Neil, uh, Neil wants to uh, wait before we sign anything. And I was like, What do you mean he wants to wait? He said, Well, you know, he's he this is a big decision. He's not a hundred percent sold. I said, what are you talking about? I just got off the phone with the people that said, welcome to Journey. I've got that voicemail on my on my answering machine. Welcome to Journey. And it was like, well, yeah, you know, I don't know what to tell you. Welcome to the music business. That's what they told me literally. And I called up John Kane and I said, man, I jumped through every hoop. Everyone, I had your people, your management team. There were people with tears in their eyes. You know, when we finished this, we wrote music together. We did everything that was supposed to happen. And now at the end of it, you're. this is what's happening. And I said, I'm out. I can't deal with it. I can't deal with the problems that you guys have inside. And I hung up on him. So you hang up on Jonathan Cain of the band Journey. And that's pretty much closes that conversation. But I did have, a, I, I did maintain a relationship with him afterwards. And the songs that we wrote together, one of them, uh, ended up being on that record that they put out in 2008. So that was the catalyst for me to go out and start Frontiers full-time was because I had this million-selling album out there with a song I had helped write. Which song was it? Uh, Never Walk Away. Yeah, yeah. Um,
1: Which, by the way, there's a demo of you singing with Journey on YouTube of that song.
0: Yeah, yeah, there is. Um, That and the other song that was already written was called uh, Where Did I Lose Your Love? And I did I did some pretty significant stuff with that song, too, um, as far as writing and arranging some of the, what was already there. I didn't get credit for that one. So, <laughs> so that's that was maybe a, a $20,000 I didn't get to see. But at the end of the day, you know, my name was on the record and I had this story that I could tell. So why wouldn't I go out there? And um, make you know, make a go of that.
1: How long did you do Frontiers full time before you finally blew out your vocal cord or whatever? And by the way, is that like like the the ultimate outcome of singing songs like Steve Perry sang songs? Because I think like it seems like there's like a whole row of people who can't sing anymore who used to sing that way.
0: No, for me, it was a very natural voice that I I
1: could I could just sing it. You know, it's that was my I was able to sing the songs. Um, Still to this day, if I'm walking through Publix and a journey song comes on, I see you singing it. Yeah. In my head. That's crazy. So anyway, continue. (laughs) No, but um,
0: it it was an incident. So in, in Ohio, July 4th weekend, 2011, um, a big outdoor event um, for the 4th of July and so they had all these pyrotechnics and all these lasers and everything like that and all of this equipment was from 1977, 1982 or whatever just you know the kind of that they put in the city warehouse you know and, and drag it back out every year for 30 or 40 years and they had an old-fashioned fog machine that took whatever kind of chemicals it did Um that was supposed to fill the stage before we came up and it was on a uh, road case by a drum riser that they needed to get into so they pulled it off the road case and set it down directly in front of my microphone got into the road case and never put it back so i came out the intro of the song i think was separate ways maybe but there's this giant two minute you know build up and of, of introduction and i come out and i can't see my hand in front of my face And all of these chemicals are just blowing directly into my nose and into my mouth as I'm starting to sing. And I felt my vocal cords immediately seize up. And so for the next 90 minutes, I continued to push and sing through that. When what had happened is those chemicals had basically burned my vocal cords. Wow. And by continuing to sing and continuing to perform um, the next, you know, the next show that we did. I would always recover within a day or so. And the next show that we did was later that next weekend. And I really, you know, just wasn't even thinking twice about it. We got to the venue and uh, all of a sudden it's like, nope, my voice right now is exactly the same way it was on stage, you know, last weekend and come to find out I had, uh, I went to a Duke uh laryngologist, um, had them look at it and do surgery for it. But there is a sulcus in my vocal cord and what that is it's a divot on the interior of your vocal cord and the same exact thing happened to julie andrews um it becomes a scar tissue so if you could imagine the skin the material on your fingernail is um you know very rough and and thick that sort of same sort of thing is a coating on the inside of my vocal cord so i no longer have the flexibility i no longer have that feather, you know, like ability to inflect, you know, my voice and, uh, it'll never change.
1: You miss it. You miss singing.
0: Um, I still sing my own, in my own voice. I sound more like Huey Lewis in the news or, you know, uh, Lionel Richie, you know, that kind of thing. I, I like to still sing. I can still sing Urgent by Foreigner. Um, but, what I miss is when I look at something like on YouTube, uh, I'll see myself sing Unchained Melody or I think there's a clip of uh, We Are The World where I did every single voice and it's like a different person because I can look at that now having knowing that I cannot do that anymore and appreciate it and say what in the world that is so great that and but I wasn't allowed to think that way back then. and I actually, I didn't think that way anyways, but now that I'm separated from that, I look back and what I miss is the fact that that was a part of me. That was who I was. That was what I could do. Um, and that was, you know, that's no longer who I
1: am. Hmm. Let's do your third song. All right. This is a song I am unfamiliar with. Yeah, I'm going to set this one up too.
0: Um, so in January of 2020, um, my wife, uh, Sabrina, uh, was, she got a phone call from the the doctor that told her she had, uh, needed to come back in for another, uh, another checkup. And, um, we found out very shortly that she was diagnosed with, uh, breast cancer. And this was a late January early February and at the same time there was this weird illness that was kind of moving across the country uh, you know starting on the west coast and then in New York all of a sudden more people are getting sick so Sabrina was uh, found out that she had to get chemotherapy and she was going to have to have surgery for this and the um, the thing at the time was nobody knew what was happening with covid so we were having to go and do these chemotherapy treatments out of state because she went to, to Duke to have this done, um, and these surgeries. And at the same time, nobody could go into the hospital. I'm having to wait in the parking lot, you know, for them to wheel her out. Um, you know, we're we're scared, you know, beyond any realm of of imagination, um, because of life threatening illness on all sides of us. So it was a, just a very bizarre, surreal time. And this song, the third song, is is a song that I discovered right at the time that this was all happening. And so now every time that I hear it, every time I listen to it, I love this singer and I love this song, but I cannot disassociate it from that moment in time where it was like this weird twilight on the world. And on top of everything else, we were having to deal with this life-threatening uh illness for sabrina that you know we had two little kids and and is she gonna be okay and and so she came back from surgery um and i set her up in this room in this bed right here the the bed i slept in
1: last night which was super comfortable yeah
0: because my mom was afraid of spiders so i think uh, i saw a
1: spider earlier
0: (laughs) (laughs) but I I would, I set the lights down and brought her in here and she's in this stupor. I had just driven her three hours back from Raleigh and I I put on very peaceful, calm music and this song started to play and I was sitting here at the desk working on email or something and um, it's just playing in the background and then I hear Sabrina very weakly after the song is over and she says, well, I'll wait until after the song because um, you're not going to know it. But she says, is the name of this song, How Will I Know? And when you hear the song, it's just over and over. How will I know? How will I know? How will I know? And it's like it's the most bizarre thing to say <laughs> when she's laying there, you know, in, in recovery from this. Uh, and she, is the song How Will I Know? And I was like, it is. How did you guess that? So it was a moment of levity, I think. But um, in reality, I, every time I listen to it, it just brings me back to that time.
1: Well, let's listen to it. Uh, this is Jeremy Hunsager's final song here on Three Song Stories this week. This is How Will I Know by, how do you say the name? Yale Name. From the 2020 album Night Songs. How will I know? because that does take you back to an intense place in your life. Is that a song that you have listened to often or have you avoided it for the most part?
0: It does come up in playlists and stuff. I, I, I listen to Yale names, you know, record. I mean, it's, it's something that I'll listen to the whole way through because I like a lot of her songs. Um, but that song in particular, just the ethereal quality of it and the surreal twilight aspect of, of that moment in time is just very, very
1: visceral um and it's hard to separate does sabrina know that you picked that as one of your three songs Cause yeah. she's upstairs so she probably just heard us playing it yeah no i told her
0: uh i told her i was going to mention that and she like looked at me like why would you pick? why would you pick that song <laughs> like, well because it's, it's my song this is my three song stories
1: does she remember asking what the name of the song was
0: Oh no, she was uh, out of it completely. Yeah, she had literally just gotten back from surgery. So
1: it's my it's my memory, honey. <laughs> uh, do you and her uh, do your musical tastes align?
0: No, not really. I mean, they did they did early on. I think because we all listened to the same popular music. Uh, I think over the past ten to twenty years, um, you know, I've gotten more deeper into the the music that I listen to um, whether it's jazz and, and uh, you know, a a little bit more eclectic music as she's listens, you know, uh, she has her own wide variety of songs, maybe more in the uh, contemporary Christian or gospel music and, and uh, potentially some country songs and stuff like that. And I just don't, I don't listen to that, but we have our shared, you know, discography. I mean, we have 34 years of, of history, Of all of those songs.
1: If you were going to go on a road trip and you're going to put in a CD, not just a playlist, what CD would you guys decide together to put in, do you think? Together? Yeah. If you were getting in the car with her, no kids, we're driving, we're going to listen to a CD, we got to pick one together. It would be either um, Seal's second album um, or it would be Peter Gabriel's uh, Shaking the Tree. Okay. Yeah. All right, um, you ready for a speed round, Jeremy? And we're going to add an element to the speed round. So be have the the ragu tour team notes thing handy. We're going to implement that here in a second. All right, um, but you ready for a speed round? Let's do it. Um, um, do you have a nickname that has stuck over the course of your life? You'd be willing to share with our listeners. I do not have a nickname, no. Closest thing you ever we tried to give you the, a nickname when we were the Ragu Tour team because we had um, offices. Remember, we made Hyphen President because he was right. he was new to Fort Myers. Yeah, you were the Music Man.
0: Okay. Yeah. That's not kind of a really catchy
1: nickname. Though. No, it's
0: <laughs> <laughs> hey, Oh look, here comes the music man. It's
1: like I'm singing seventy-six trombones every time I walk in the room. <laughs> well, I think I was the navigator, which made no sense. Right, right. And, and Biff uh was the um supplier. <laughs> supplier
0: of what? <laughs>
1: Things that he would supply us with. He was director of acquisition. He was the <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's what he was. If we were more grown up, that's what we would have given him. So no nickname. Um, uh, do you do karaoke? No. Have you ever? Yes. What did you sing? I uh,
0: Most of the time I would sing um, Who Can It Be Now by Men at Work. Uh, I also sang I, I would like to sing U2 songs just because it was funny to sing like Bono. And when I really wanted to show off, I would do Unchained Melody.
1: You do obviously do physical media music because you've got a record player out there with a bunch of records and stuff like that. So we're just going to skip by that. Um, But your bio also, though, does say that you think digital is better than analog. Can you flesh that out a bit?
0: Yeah, I think anything that's on vinyl these days is uh, that's released is digital, anyways. It's everything is digital. So you're putting it back in this. You know, you're you're basically putting it into this destructive. So a, a
1: modern release vinyl would have been created using a digital source anyway most of the time right right
0: yeah so i have a lot of records that are analog you know sourced because when i first got into collecting records a couple years ago it was more of a nostalgia thing so i i would start collecting the records when i was 12 13 14 years old and then as i started getting some vinyl versions of newer stuff that i would listen to i began to realize kind of there's not really any difference here you know it's kind of a uh you know there's not the same visceral electricity in the room when you're listening to this digital version on on vinyl um and then the ability on digital to just create playlists to listen to multiple you know artists and mixed uh you know just pick up songs on the fly that the ease of using it i think is a great Big benefit over vinyl. And
1: back before I busted you for, I called you Slumman for playing that first song streamed because you do have a media center where you import songs and save them as FLAC files, so you are not compressing your digital files uh, because you're a snob.
0: No, every, I mean, there's a time and place for everything. So I listen to Spotify in the car. I, I listen to Sonos speakers on the deck. I mean, if I'm sitting here in in a room that I've specifically designed for. A, so that, that two channel listening then you know there's there's gonna
1: be a lot of source. I just had to bust your chops a little bit. <gasps> um it certainly makes less difference than those fat um audio cables do. Oh yeah. Um if you were a championship wrestler what music would you enter to? Um
0: Backstreet's back by the Backstreet Boys. Is right, that a song? I don't know. It's the song that goes pow, Bow pow, 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 pow. And then the guy goes, "Ah!" Ha, ha. And it's like everybody come on and down. Anyways, I think that's the Backstreet Boys singing "Backstreet." Boys.
1: You know how to do all that, but you don't know if it's them. <laughs> I think it's them
0: because the alternative is in sync, and I don't think that in sync would be singing "We're the Backstreet
1: Boys." That's probably a good point. So it must be them. Um, what would your wrestler name be? Uh, pig and a poke. Pig and a poke. Um, what activities or pursuits make you lose track of time the most? Writing. Probably writing. If you had to guess, what song would you say you've listened to the most times in your life? Mm.
0: I don't know. Um there were songs I would listen to over and over and over again because I would learn them or something like that. But if it's just like the song that I would listen to the most for pure enjoyment, um, I don't I, know. I just don't know. It would probably be something by Peter Gabriel.
1: Okay. Yeah. Um, song you wish you can hear again for the first time ever.
0: Oh. Hmm. How about Rainbow Connection?
1: From by, by Kermit. The, by
0: Kermit the Frog.
1: Yeah. Um, album you wish you could hear again for the first time.
0: Uh, Judas Priest's Sad Wings of Destiny.
1: Okay. Pick up, uh, this thing. Okay. So what I have here is, uh, I have just some notes that I took a few years ago, thinking back to those ragu tour ta- tour team times, because I'd like to, uh, write a screenplay someday and do like a, a an awesome movie reliving our time. So what we're going to do here is... We're going to go back and forth. You have to just read one and we have to read. We're each going to read five. So we're going to go back and forth. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. So okay. out of context, no discussion afterwards. You go first.
0: I just pick one and just, say just,
1: it? Just pick one and say it. Um, chicken pox. Kung fu bicyclist. Beef's Camaro. John the Dweeb number two. There's names in here uh, Getting busted for
0: shoplifting
1: (laughs) Stopping at the cabin With Kaus's axe incident Yikes Church plays With Jeremy reading off a clipboard But killing
0: it (laughs) I think that's my favorite
1: Playing basketball And the mom and child showing up And the mom was chewing tobacco uh one more each i think okay sunshine singers tedford at confirmation with white suit awesome uh we had good times
0: yes that was quite a list
1: that was quite a list and it's all relatively true um any songs you'll avoid listening to
0: there were songs that I, I listened to that I loved at the time that I can't listen to anymore because of how what they remind me of. And I guess that, that's what you're asking. But Mostly what I'm asking.
1: Um, R- Room at the Top by Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. I won't even ask you to explain. Sure. Um, if you could broadcast a song into the head of every human in a simultaneous global magical moment, what song would it be? Over the Rainbow. Huh. The one, the one that we've all, the one from The, the Wizard the, of Oz. The written rendition we all know. Yep. Um, do you have a favorite band? Tears for Fears. Hmm. What would your 14-year-old self, early in the tour team, Mark, think of who you are today and the life you've lived in the uh, intervening time?
0: I think he would be crippled with anxiety. If I, if I, <laughs> I think fourteen-year-old Jeremy, if I opened up his mind and showed him the next thirty-five, forty years of his life, he would never leave his room. <laughs> it's just, it, 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 To think, if I had to go through all of that again, it, it, of everything that I've been through, I feel like Dewey Cox over here, <laughs> just talking about looking over my whole life. But uh, yeah, that would be something.
1: Um, you know, I was trying to think if I would be surprised to know at that point that we would still be friends and still talking about Ragoutour team and still shouting red at each other through text messages. Mm-hmm. And I don't think I would have been surprised. I think that whatever it is we formed back then, we knew it was going to always last. Does that make sense to you, too?
0: Yeah, I never uh, had any doubt that we, I mean, we would probably even make up, we would probably even talk about it. Like, oh, well, yeah, so would. Someday, you know, 30 years from now. Hmm. Uh, I think it comes down to that Stephen King line in Stand By Me, right? You know which one I'm talking about? I don't. You never have friends like you do, like the ones that you make when you're 12 years old. Yeah.
1: So oh, and that's in our did. case,
0: a little bit older than that, I guess. But um, it was hmm. the same thing. You know, I feel like we just went on continually over and over for three or four years. We went on walks to find dead bodies. Like, that's all that we were doing. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah except we didn't find dead bodies but we found some fun that's for sure all we found right a you,
0: pack of cigarettes get we've we,
1: we found at least one. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, okay it's time for you to recommend three people that you'll share this with that you think we could get on
0: all right um well my my network of people overlaps so much with yours that i'm not gonna there's people that would be obvious that I'm not going to mention in my world. I think as far as copywriting goes and, and marketing and stuff like that, there's some great storytellers that I know that are also very musically inclined. So I would say I'll, I'll give you these names uh, and contact information, but Kevin Rogers, uh, a copywriter, um, uh, Ryan Lee who's an entrepreneur uh, and, and marketer and a guy named Paris Lampropolis. He was also a, a musician and a pretty good copywriter.
1: Sounds great. Yep. Um, any final thoughts? When was the last time you did a panorama?
0: Oh, my God. I think it's probably been at least two or three weeks. <laughs> <laughs> any final thoughts? <laughs> no, man. This is too long. It was too long. I'm glad that we finally got the chance to sit together and, and do it face-to-face instead of uh, trying to make it happen over the airwaves
1: absolutely good talking to you awesome love you buddy red red this week's parting tune is hoping for you the song we talked about that jeremy and the boys blew the roof off of the talent show with at the summer camp in north carolina back in the late 80s this is a slower more thoughtful version that he put out on his solo album called every little thing it's written by jeremy and future three song stories guest chris kaus and it features a guitar solo by the late john spinks of the outfield we make three song stories in the studios of WGCU Public Radio on the campus of Florida Gulf Coast University in Fort Myers, Florida. Richard Chinqui is co-creator and producer. Tara Callaghan is host and online content producer. Our production assistant is Jared the Intern Gonzalez, Chris Duff is executive producer. And our theme song was created by Dave, Dave, Dave Cowan and Stick Martin at Monkey House Studio in St. Pete.
2: Sleep comes like a dream. Divide of love Absent of passion Another day still alone Time I told you how I'm feeling But then I've